You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,873rd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 7th of April 2022. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Ruth Hill and your readers are David Palmer and Sheila Franklin. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now to our headlines this week. Suffolk snub as £77 million bus funding bid rejected. Families face perfect storm with soaring energy prices. Patients face many, many years of long Covid, health boss says. Consultation launches on future of Newmarket. A £77 million bid to upgrade bus services in Suffolk has been rejected by the government, while neighbouring Norfolk has received £49 million. Suffolk's bus service improvement plan was lodged late last year as part of the government's Bus Back Better scheme. It included daily fare caps on routes, merging Ipswich's two main bus stations and a contactless or Oyster Card-style ticketing system. But Suffolk failed to secure a single penny in the Department for Transport's announcement yesterday. Richard Smith, Suffolk County Council's Cabinet Member for Economic Development, Transport and Waste, said the bid was ambitious and the snub was disappointing. But Andrew Stringer, leader of the Green, Lib Dem and Independent Group, said the bid had not been good enough. The Department for Transport said the successful areas have been chosen because of their ambition to repeat the success achieved in London, which drove up bus usage and made the bus a natural choice for everyone, not just those without cars. As the government stated in last year's national bus strategy, Bus Back Better, areas not showing sufficient ambition including for improvements to bus priority, would not be funded. A spokesman added that unsuccessful bids did not fully meet the criteria set out by the government. Families face perfect storm with soaring energy prices. A taxi driver and father of four is considering working up to 80 hours a week to cope with rising costs as a charity warns of a perfect storm facing communities. Mark Goodchild, aged 46 of Goodchild Cars in Bury St Edmunds, recently paid £340 to fill up his Mercedes taxi with diesel for a week as fuel prices hit record levels. With UK inflation already at a 30-year high, today the energy price cap is to rise by a huge 54%, which will be a worrying hit for families' finances. Tim Holder, Head of Public Affairs at the Suffolk Community Foundation charity, said people were facing a perfect storm of exceptionally difficult challenges all at one time, 
which would push many, many thousands more into deprivation. Citizens Advice West Suffolk said they were extremely concerned about the increase in the price of oil and the impact this would have on rural communities who rely on oil for their heating. In the St Edmundsbury area, 8,073 households use oil for central heating, while in Mid-Suffolk this figure is 14,163, according to the nongasmap.org.uk website. website. One Pakenham resident said their most recent heating bill for 929 litres was £819, which would cover them for two months. Mr Goodchild, who has a Hackney carriage vehicle using the rank in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre, is among taxi drivers calling for West Suffolk Council to increase fares, something the local authority has not done since 2019. He said he was using the taxi rank in the town centre less and less and had been taking on private work and he increased his hours to keep his head above water financially. Mr Goodchild, a single parent, said... I'm currently working 60 hours a week and it now looks like it will have to be between 70 and 80. I'm never at home. I have four children and two living at home. They're 21 and 16 now. He added, I do worry about paying the bills, but I just keep working and working and doing as much as I can, really. Mr Goodchild said he knew of Hackney carriage drivers who were giving up, using the rank as it's just not worth it, and added, It's obviously going to leave the public stranded. Speaking at the last full West Suffolk Council meeting, Councillor Andy Drummond said they planned to review passenger charges this summer. The cost of heating oil, which is not covered by a price cap, was highlighted as an area of concern by Citizens Advice West Suffolk when they spoke with us about the cost of living crisis. Its CEO, Carol Eagles, said... Many people cannot afford to purchase the minimum amount of 500 litres, which is currently costing over £500. We've been fortunate to have access to some funding to help support our clients with the cost of heating. She said that since Christmas they had provided fuel grants to 55 households to a value of 13500 Bury St Edmunds MP Joe Churchill said she had raised the issue of the cost of heating oil with government ministers. Long Covid will continue to affect some people in Suffolk for many, many years, an expert has said, with a spike in the number of cases in the county predicted over coming months. NHS models show the number of Long Covid cases in the county nearing 30,000, mirroring the Omicron surge around Christmas time. (coughs) At the start of March, there were estimated to be 12,685 cases in Suffolk, but a further 17,185 are expected by the middle of May. Sarah Fowler, clinical lead for Suffolk and North East Essex Long Covid Assessment Service, said the clinic she leads has seen 1,200 people so far, but she believes it is only treating the tip of the iceberg. These patients vary from those who may have no sense of taste or smell to those with crushing fatigue. Mrs Fowler said, For some people, even two years down the line, 
it is still a very physically and mentally debilitating illness. At the moment, there is no cure for long COVID. Mrs Fowler, who leads a team based in Bury St Edmunds, Ipswich and Colchester, said, We're kind of building the plane as we're flying it. At the moment, it is about using self-management techniques to manage those peaks and troughs in symptoms while allowing as much natural recovery as you can. For some people, it will be a condition they probably need to manage for greater or lesser extent for many, many years. But we need to make sure we don't take hope away from people with long COVID and give a wrongly dire message. I think that is going to be the minority of cases. The majority of people will recover. Exciting plans for a new cinema park and all-weather racecourse in Newmarket have been unveiled following the launch of a public consultation on the future of the town. The proposals put forward by the Jockey Club were presented to people in the town from Monday to Wednesday last week at Memorial Hall and the consultation is now available to view online. Under the plans, the subscription rooms, which used to house the Horse Racing Museum in the town, could be converted into a cinema. The proposed concept would involve the conversion of existing buildings, with some additions, in order to create a three-screen cinema. The Jockey Club said the vision for the facility would be to include small, medium and large screen rooms, ranging from 38 to 115 seats. The idea for a new park on Jockey Club land was also proposed on the large hill and lower marsh of the Seven Springs site in the town. A new road off Exning Road would provide access and the existing cycle network would link to new trails within the park. A small community barn or cafe would be at the highest point of the park, providing a key vantage point and a children's playground is also proposed. A race course with the potential for year-round training is also proposed on land behind the Rolly Mile. The floodlit training and racing facility, which would feature a right-handed circuit, would be based on Gallop's land behind the Rolly Mile, known as Southfields Farm. The possibility of a residential development at Pinewood Stud was also put forward. And now to our general news section. Bury St Edmunds is enjoying a jobs boom with dozens of vacancies at town centre businesses as the unemployment rate continues to fall. In just the Buttermarket and Cornhill area alone, there were 12 notices in shop windows for a range of vacancies on Wednesday. Town business leader Mark Cordell, chief executive of Our Bury St Edmunds, said the job vacancy rate in the town was as big as he, has, as he had known it and while it was a positive sign that traders were recovering from the pandemic and required more staff, it was an employee's market, with job hunters being more selective in the roles they go for. Arbery St Edmunds advertises, brand, advertises vacancies on its website, and last week there were 38, with some having been there for months. It follows a steady reduction in the unemployment rate in West Suffolk, with 1,690 less people on universal credit and job seekers allowance looking for work than a year ago, a 37% reduction 
according to Department for Work and Pension Statistics. This includes 445 young people aged 18 to 24 now in work. Chris Knight's Suffolk Operations Leader for the county's 12 job centres said West Suffolk's employment rate of 76.4% was one of the best rates nationally. He said the high number of jobs available was down to the economic recovery post-COVID and they had reached out to employers to set up zones in the job centres where potential applicants could speak to them. The rate of pay, Mr Knights noted, was increasing, particularly in the hospitality sector with salaries of between £9 to £15 an hour. An increasing number of patients are being treated with COVID at hospitals in Suffolk and North Essex, latest figures have revealed. According to government data, there were 339 patients being cared for between East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust, ESNEFT, and West Suffolk Hospital on March 29th. This figure has jumped up from 246 patients last week a rise of 93. ESNEFT, which runs Ipswich and Colchester hospitals, was caring for 267 patients, up from 182 on March the 22nd. However, only 10 of these were being treated with mechanical ventilation. West Suffolk Hospital in Bury St Edmunds had 72 patients, up from 64, though only two were on a ventilator. However, the data does not reveal how many of these patients are being treated primarily for COVID or for another condition. The rise in COVID numbers in hospital comes amid an increase in the number of infections reported in Suffolk. For the seven days leading up to March the 27th, there were 8,219 new cases reported in the county. Last week, Stuart Keeble, Suffolk's Director of Public Health, said he was understandably concerned about rising infection rates. He added, Although we are no longer required to legally self-isolate if we have COVID, we do still strongly recommend to, as this will prevent more people from becoming ill, especially those most susceptible. Last week, ESNEFT announced the suspension of visitors to its wards at Ipswich and Colchester hospitals after a surge in the number of COVID cases in the local area. Despite rising cases, the number of deaths with COVID on the death certificate in Suffolk has steadily fallen since the start of the year. In the seven days leading up to March 18th, there were 15 deaths with COVID on the death certificate, but there were 22 in the seven days leading up to January the 14th. Cycle lane bollards along two roads in Bury St Edmunds are to be removed. Suffolk County Council confirmed this week that the bollards, known as Wands, along Risbygate Street and Beaton's Way, will be taken down. The decision has been welcomed by campaigners who say the Wands, installed in September 2020, on a trial basis during the pandemic, are unsafe and have caused chaos and disrupted business. A third survey into how the public feel about the lane in Risbygate Street was due to start last month after council claims they were becoming more popular. However, in a surprise announcement this week, 
Suffolk County Council said both the Risbygate and Beaton's Way bollards will be removed at a date to be decided. Councillor Richard Smith, Suffolk County Council Cabinet Member for Economic Development, Transport, Strategy and Waste, said, I'm aware of local concerns about this in Bury St Edmunds and the decision has been made that the ones will be taken out as soon as we can do so. It is understood further discussions will take place with residents and shopkeepers around Risbygate Street whether to keep the white painted cycle lane markings. Residents in Nelson's Road off Risbygate Street have called for the shopping street's original eight parking bays to be reinstated after their closure led to illegal parking on their street. White cycle lanes were already painted in Beaton's Way before the ones were installed, and will stay. The new ones, however, led to claims the cycle lane is unsafe due to a build-up of mud and leaves. Campaigner Billy Wappet said, This is fantastic news. The lanes are dangerous and should never have been installed in the first place. Thetford could get a second train station as part of a huge housing expansion which could make it the first new one in Norfolk for decades. Land has been set aside for an extra stop on the line between Norwich and Cambridge under plans for a major housing development on the town's outskirts. The station could form part of the new King's Fleet neighbourhood where 5,000 homes are being built in the northeast of the town. The railway line runs through the middle of the development and as part of the project, an area of land has been earmarked for a new station. The overall scheme was given permission in principle by Breckland Council in 2015, but the finer details are now in the process of being approved, with the land divided up into smaller parcels, known as subphases. In a council report about a subphase, officials noted land had been retained for a rail halt. The idea was first mooted in 2013, when the plans were still being developed, by consultants acting on behalf of the landowners. Almost a decade later, with the concept an official part of the development, expectations will be raised that the proposed station could become a reality. The entire first phase is due to be completed by 2029. A Norfolk County Council spokesman said that while the authority was supportive of rail travel in general, they would need to see this proposal in full. Breckland Council, Network Rail and the Department for Transport have all been approached for comment. A new railway station would be Norfolk's first since Rawton Road Station on the outskirts of Cromer in 1985. Bury St Edmunds Town Council has approved funding requests for two nature initiatives. The council, which met last Wednesday, is to make £9,255 available to the Berry Water Meadows Group. It will fund a bio-blitz in May, with the public working alongside experts to produce a wildlife survey of the Abbey Gardens. The event is part of the Abbey 1000 celebrations. In addition... Explore Outdoor, an initiative on behalf of Abbeycroft Leisure, also floated proposals at the meeting for the planting of a healing wood. 
Suffolk County Council has sought to encourage the creation of such forests across the region in the hope that they will serve as spaces for reflection, providing mental health benefits. Councillors voted unanimously to provide £13,551 to facilitate the effort. A representative from Abbeycroft Leisure said the funding would enable not just the planting but an educational drive. He said, it's not just saying, oh, let's plant some trees. People need to understand why we're planting them and what it does for the future. A dozen fire crews spent an hour tackling a blaze at the British Sugar Factory in Bury St Edmunds last Thursday night. Firefighters received a call to smoke coming from within a large industrial premises in Hollow Road near the A14 at about 10.05pm on Thursday, March the 31st. A statement on the Suffolk Fire and Rescue Log said firefighters wore breathing apparatus and used one hose reel jet to extinguish the blaze. A stop call was made by 11.07pm by the fire service. The 12 fire engines were sent from stations including Woodbridge, Haverhill, Wickenbrook, Bury St Edmunds, Elmswell, Ixworth, Mildenhall and Newmarket who all attended the incident. The Queen's Platinum Jubilee is nearly upon us and now is the time to get the county sparkling clean for the celebrations. The East Anglian Daily Times is backing the Clean for the Queen campaign, which will take place over the bank holiday weekend of Friday, April the 29th to Monday, May the 2nd. The campaign is encouraging residents to smarten up their streets, villages and towns ahead of the celebrations. BBC Radio Suffolk presenter Mark Murphy, who is helping organise the campaign, said it's a great opportunity to hopefully get out in the spring sunshine and clear up some of the litter that's blighting our beautiful county. The more we can do to discourage people from tossing it down in the first place, the better. In the meantime, let's keep cleaning for the Queen. Mr Murphy previously spearheaded the hugely successful Don't Be a Tosser campaign. The latest campaign ties in with the Festival of Suffolk, a series of events celebrating the Jubilee and all things Suffolk between May and October this year. A planning application to convert a town's long empty court building into apartments could be submitted soon. Bury St Edmunds Magistrates Court on Honey Hill closed in October 2016 as part of the government's cost-cutting measures and cases are now heard in Ipswich. Homes England, the government body responsible for the disposal of surplus land and buildings, said the property was sold on a conditional basis in May 2020. A spokesman said the buyer is in the process of securing planning consent and listed building consent to convert the building into apartments and hopes to submit the application soon. Once they secure planning and other necessary approvals, the contract will change to unconditional and the freehold will transfer to them. In 2018, Homes England said the site could provide up to 18 homes subject to planning permission. A former teacher and youth theatre champion who has been described as a bundle of energy has died aged 91. 
Daphne Dyer, who died last Friday, was the former head of year and head of PE at Hardwick Middle School in Bury St Edmunds and had always been involved in youth drama and activity. Her daughter, Laura Dyer, said her mother would have touched an enormous number of young people's lives through her years as a teacher and supporting Suffolk Young People's Theatre, or SYPT. When her husband Ray set up SYPT in 1979, two years after moving to Bury, Daphne threw herself into the charity and throughout the years could be seen working behind the scenes as production manager or even making trays of sandwiches. Daphne took on an even more active role when Ray died in 2007. Laura, Deputy Chief Executive of Arts Council England, said she was a bundle of energy and activity and her years as a PE teacher made her a good organiser. What she and my dad did was really open up opportunities and access to people to be involved in all kinds of arts and culture, be that as a performer or backstage or as a musician. They had the belief that opportunity should be available whatever your background or income. Nigel Turner, former chairman of SYPT, said she was a wonderful, iconic figure in the youth theatre world particularly. I moved to the area to teach drama at King Edward VI School and I met Daphne and Ray through that process and through our youngest son, Matt, who was interested in theatre and drama. Matt was part of SYPT for many years and took part in a number of their shows. They were very supportive of him and he's been a professional actor for 10 years as a good number of actors who were in SYPT now, in fact, are. Ian Shipley, Chair of Trustees at SYPT, added that there would be a tribute to Daphne later in the year. The 2022 Stowmarket Town Awards were formally launched on Thursday, opening nominations to the public. The launch event at the Regal Stowmarket was attended by local business people, dignitaries and community leaders. The awards recognise unsung heroes of Stowmarket who make a difference in the community. Previous winners have included recipients of honours from the Queen, British and World Champions and award-winning businesses. Mayor-elect Barry Salmon said the town awards recognised the great and the good of the town. This is my hometown and what I like about Stowmarket is that it's full of wonderful people without airs and graces who nonetheless do truly remarkable things. The Stowmarket Town Awards is an event that we should all be proud of. A couple have spoken of their heartbreak and anger after a statue they had bought for their daughter's grave disappeared. Geraldine and David Parsley, aged in their 80s, had visited the plot of their daughter Frances Ems at West Suffolk Crematorium at Risby about three weeks ago when they realised that the two-and-a-half-foot-tall fairy statue they had left there as a Christmas present was missing. Mrs Ems was 42 when she died from cancer in 2012 and it is coming up to the 10th anniversary of her death. Claire Butcher, site manager at West Suffolk Cemetery and Crematorium, said as soon as they were made aware of the theft, they checked their CCTV, but unfortunately it did not cover that part of the grounds. Miss Butcher said, 
Our hearts go out to Mr and Mrs Parsley who are victims of a heartless theft of a memorial. We would expect everyone in the community to respect memorials as they are an important part of the grieving process and help families to remember their loved ones. The trial of a Suffolk father and son accused of the vigilante killing of a thief in Bury St Edmunds after he tried the door handles of cars outside their home has been adjourned until after Easter. Before Ipswich Crown Court are 55-year-old David King and his 19-year-old son Edward King, both of Radnor Close, Bury St Edmunds. They've denied murdering Neil Charles and an an alternative charge of manslaughter in June last year. It has been alleged that David and Edward King hunted down 47-year-old Mr Charles and stabbed him after he tried door handles of cars parked outside their home. Christopher Paxton QC, prosecuting, has claimed they delivered their own form of justice on Mr Charles in the early hours of Sunday, June 20th last year, around 70 metres from their family home. He describes what they did as an act of vigilante violence. Mr Charles suffered a 12 centimetre single stab wound to the chest and a slash wound to his knee and died two days later. Mr Paxton told the jury that Mr Charles had a long career as a thief and burglar and was out that night looking for opportunities to steal. The prosecution accept he was out that night stealing or looking to steal, but we have the police force to be called out and a criminal justice system to process those who are accused of a crime, he said. Mr Paxton alleged the father and son had an obsession and fascination with weapons, and following the death of Mr Charles, numerous items were discovered in their homes. At their home, these included knives, knuckle dusters, machetes and shotguns, for which David King had licences as a registered firearm holder. The court has heard that the defendants exchanged violent texts prior to the killing, saying what they might do if anyone came to their home and did what Mr Charles was trying to do. In a 999 call after the alleged attack, David King claimed Mr Charles had run onto a knife he was holding after hitting him with his bike. And now we turn to our letters section. Our first letters comment on the effect of the Chancellor's spring statement. And the first letter is from Peter Critchley of Pakenham, who says that the Chancellor got it wrong in the statement. I am sure our MP, Joe Churchill, joined in the enthusiastic applauding of the Chancellor of the Exchequer after his spring statement, only to find out in the afternoon and the next day that every esteemed economic pundit was pulling it to pieces, thereby questioning the judgment of those MPs who supported the measures. All the experts agreed that benefits should have risen in line with inflation, but that's the last thing Conservatives want, as this would narrow the gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the richest in our society and the poorest, something quite unthinkable. As P&O have shown, you look after the shareholders, but sack the workers. It is just unfortunate if you fall ill, end up in a wheelchair, say, cannot work although you would desperately like to do so, 
and then find the government expect you to manage the current crisis on the money they have reluctantly had to give you in the first place. What they have done instead is promise tax cuts in two years' time, but failing to acknowledge that more people, including those on low incomes, will be paying more tax, not less, than they are doing now. Not my thoughts, but the thoughts of all the experts in this field. Even some Tory MPs have realised the public have been conned, but I doubt Mrs Churchill will be one of them. Conservatives have an obsession with reducing taxes, but they fail to tell you who on earth is going to pay for more doctors, nurses, home care staff, hospitals, police and all other public services. The multimillionaire Sunak tried to make out he was a man of the people, looking after their financial interests by borrowing someone's car from Sainsbury's car park and then filling it up with petrol which hadn't yet been reduced in price. You couldn't make it up. It is said that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but it seems to me the Conservatives have mastered the art in fooling all of the people all of the time. When will the public come to their senses? It's always jammed tomorrow, says Keith Apps from Berries and Edmonds, and he writes... Once again, we have our invisible MP doing nothing for our pensioners. She hasn't apologised yet for robbing us of a 5% pension increase, which would have helped us with the horrendous increases in gas and electric increases, which in Europe are just not happening. Our Chancellor has no comprehension of what most of our country are struggling to live on. After all, his wife is richer than the Queen. Of course, if you're an ex-employee of P&O, you possibly might have thought that our MP would support you. What a mistake to make. She trooped into the lobby to vote against a bill that would make fire and hire illegal, as it is in Europe. Don't forget that you are going to get 1% off your tax rate in two years' time. Of course, you have to pay tax to get it. One thing you can be sure of, it's always jammed tomorrow. Our next few letters are about the situation in Ukraine. Philip Hodson of Newmarket says that NATO has totally been unprepared. Sir, military analysts reportedly believe the casualty rate for the Russians is higher than in any conflict since the Second World War. So what is NATO waiting for? Russia has threatened us with nuclear bombardment. Where is NATO's call to arms? We, Western Europeans have been threatened by death from a cabal which is now dispensing death to millions. NATO is leaving us totally unprepared, in my opinion. Our enemy sees that. Russia is scaling back its invasion of Ukraine, we are told, but Putin has laid claim to its centuries' previous empire. Ukraine may have proved a hard nut to crack for the present, but NATO has shown it folds to nuclear threat. Ukraine has not. NATO's Europe, tied hand and foot by its own bureaucracy, is infinitely less prepared and much less flexible for the exigencies of war. It can make for Putin a much better target. Martin Strutton from Shelterbox writes about charity delivering aid to Ukraine. I've been in Poland since the start of March, 
with the international disaster relief charity Shelterbox, working closely with other organisations to help people affected by the deteriorating crisis in Ukraine. The number of people who've had to leave their homes is close to 10 million. That's almost a quarter of Ukraine's entire population uprooted. At Shelterbox, we specialise in emergency shelter and will be supporting people who have stayed in Ukraine or been displaced internally, as well as those who fled the country. The situation is complex and constantly changing, so to be effective, aid delivery must be well coordinated. We also have a team in Moldova as we take the necessary time to understand where and how we can support people as well as working with others as part of the wider humanitarian response. We are drawing on our significant experience of working in conflict areas around the world, including cross-border working with partners in Syria over the last 10 years. The people with the fewest resources or options to leave are often those who stay behind, living or sheltering in buildings that have been damaged. We're preparing to provide shelter kits with tools, ropes, solar lights, hygiene kits and water carriers to help people survive. As the conflict continues, we expect the needs of people reaching the borders to increase. We'll be supporting people who have become refugees in neighbouring countries with items they can carry with them, like toothpaste, soap and warm winter coats. We already have thousands of mattresses arriving in collective centres like schools, churches and sports centres in Lviv to help people keep warm at night. It's been possible thanks to supporters of our Ukraine appeal and close working with local agencies, the UN, other international aid organisations and Rotary. Sarah Thompson of Woodbridge says that the refugee response has been pitiful. Sir... Can this government sink any lower? Not only did the Chancellor fail to help the poorest in our society with his spring budget, but its compassion, if he had any, is leeching out daily. Ukrainian refugees are having to overcome almost insurmountable obstacles to safely arrive in the UK, and yet those fleeing war are expected to understand and complete forms only available in English. The government have failed these desperate refugees on so many levels. Fearing for their safety, sheltering where they can, sleeping on floors, having missiles rain down on them, these terrified people are expected to translate forms, scan and copy documents, and in the case of children, both parents are expected to supply everything needed. The majority of fathers are on the front line defending their country. All these obstacles should be waived, but the UK's response, compared with Germany's and other EU countries, is pitiful. Government took eye off the ball, says Robin Parks of Bury St Edmunds. Further to comments on your letters page, Bury Free Press, on March 25th, I thought I should point out the coincidence between the Brexit process and Russian military aggression in Europe. In 2013, agitation aimed at removing Britain from the EU peaked with the announcement by David Cameron that there would be a referendum on the subject. In 2014, while Britain was involved in an acrimonious election campaign, Russia invaded Ukraine. This should have invoked a similar response to that imposed during the past month, 
but instead we took our eye off the ball, and by 2016 Crimea was in Russian hands and we had voted to split European unity. Coincidences? I think not. The further weaknesses shown during the pandemic, with Britain pursuing her own independent policies, again may have encouraged Putin to go for his next goal, the annexation of the rest of Ukraine. Now we have the ludicrous spectacle of our bumbling Prime Minister, the prime architect of Brexit, dashing round Europe trying to pretend he's some sort of international statesman. Meanwhile, his civil service is busy creating often insuperable obstacles to the humane admission of Ukrainian refugees. Even if rejoining the EU is still a step too far, we urgently need some form of European Defence Association independent of NATO in order to draw a permanent red line against totalitarian aggression from the east. We missed the boat in the 1930s. Let's not do it again. On a totally different subject, G. Coleman of Stoke-by-Clare urges us to read the label. Sir, Jennifer White suggests that cow's milk should be replaced by vegan milk, East Anglian Daily Times letters March 23rd, as there are plenty of products on the market that can be used as replacements. I recently saw a vegan cheese, the label of which told me that the protein level was 1.7%. Protein in cheese from cow's milk is around 25%. Clearly, nutritionally, the vegan cheese is nowhere near an equivalent replacement. The vegan protein level was actually less than the salt content. If you buy vegan products that claim to replace animal products, read the label and compare it to the animal equivalent. In my opinion, you should not subject children to a vegan diet unless you are an expert dietitian. Meat is more densely nutritious than vegetables and a well-balanced diet using both is much more likely to lead to good health than one restricted to vegetables. Listen to the medics, says Janet Douglas of Framlingham. She writes, Sir, why is everyone so surprised with the fact that COVID cases have shot up? The government released the conditions. How many people now wear masks? People can freely mix and now lateral flow tests are going to be charged for. With the excessive rise in the cost of food, heating and petrol, who is going to be bothered to pay for a flow test? Government, listen to the medics for heaven's sake. The proposed name change for the Museum of East Anglian Life and Stowmarket continues to, to annoy people. Heather Staff from Ipswich says, Sir, I'm an East Anglian and proud of it, hailing from Old Newton, virtually the heart of Suffolk. I've been follow following the debacle over the proposed new title for our museum and frankly, I'm incensed. Incensed at the stupidity of these bots who want to change the name of the Museum of East Anglian Life to the Museum of Food. Do you think it's an improvement? Is this dumbing down for the sake of it? Are any of you East Anglians? Much of East Anglian life has been about farming and therefore the production of food, but there have been many other industries not necessarily related, which deserve their place. Some committee members appear to be of the belief 
that they must make changes as if to prove their worth, and sometimes it's change for change's sake. Please, think again. In the words of the Beatles, let it be. On the same subject, W. Sparrow of Nayland writes, Sir, despite the many letters in the EADT and the online petition about the change of the Museum of East Anglian Life's name, there's been a stony silence from the management of the museum. When the public eventually became aware of this monstrous idea, it appears to have already been a fait accompli by the management who have seemingly totally ignored all the complaints. I find it truly amazing that the museum has not had the courtesy to publicly respond to the many objections from so many real East Anglians who remember when and why the museum was set up and feel let down by this whole debacle. John DeVoe, Grant's Committee Chairman of Suffolk Historic Churches Trust of Long Melford, writes, Sir, in honour of Her Majesty's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, the Suffolk Historic Churches Trust will be awarding Jubilee grants totalling £70,000. The Trust seeks to benefit as many communities as possible and encourages the making of applications by places of worship of all denominations across Suffolk. Individual grants to churches, chapels and meeting houses will not exceed £5,000 and will be expected to cover the entire or the bulk of the costs of the project. They will be awarded for work not normally grant-aided by the Trust. They may, for example, include clocks, monuments, paintings, textiles, books, organs, stained glass and wooden items, and may possibly have a royal connection. The Trust hopes to receive imaginative proposals Inspiration may come from objects in churches and churchyards which celebrate past royal jubilees. Projects should benefit the whole community, have an enduring legacy and be a fitting tribute to the Queen's long reign. A jubilee grant application form is available from the Trust's website and that's the Grants Committee Chairman of the Suffolk Historic Churches Trust. Our final letter is from Graham Day of Stowmarket, who writes on John's impressive musical milestone. Over the years, many musicians have visited Suffolk and performed at many different locations and venues with music from all genres. A visitor often to Suffolk is Aylesbury microstar John Otway. Over a 50-year career, he will have notched up on April 2nd at Shepherd's Bush Empire 5,000 appearances. His venues locally have included theatres, the Apex, Berries and Edmonds and Sudbury's Key Theatre. Put into perspective, the Rolling Stones have managed only around 2,000. I first encountered John when he was performing with his sometime collaborator, Wild Willie Barrett, in 1997. And since then, I've seen him both solo and with his big band. Thank you, John, for your impressive contribution to the musical tapestry of our lives. I doubt whether your record will ever be surpassed. Well done. Come back to visit us again soon. And now we move on to our features section. Our first features article is an opinion piece by Martin Newell, who asks, were the 60s really so swinging after all? If you gorge yourself on the past, 
you won't leave any room for the future. Whose quote was that? Mine, actually. It seems to me that too many of us are obsessed with the recent past. The entertainment adverts of our region's newspapers are replete with Queen tributes, ABBA experiences, swinging 60s revivals, etc. In fact, the swinging 60s revivals seem ever more fragile as Father Time thins out the players' ranks. Because of this depletion, it's lately becoming necessary to weld together bands which may consist of, say, one original searcher, a latter-day Herman's Hermit, one leg of a swinging blue jean, and perhaps a mind-bender. Pop tribute acts from the later decades now abound among the listings, not only of pubs and clubs, but increasingly of art centres, who will often book such acts in order to afford more original, if less commercial, fare. We can regard the stranglehold of the tribute industry as a kind of musical Japanese knotweed, or we can think of the acts more charitably as the people's choice and saviours of our small-town venues. The situation is best summed up in a Roy Walker catchphrase. It's very good, but it's not right. It's now common to find social media groups, sometimes entire websites, dedicated to the 1960s or 1970s. Members will post up pictures of the smash advert aliens, or they'll ask, do you remember when teachers were allowed to hit you? And when you went home and told your mum, she'd hit you too. We had respect in them days. Lol. It's very strange to observe sizeable numbers of my own generation and younger spending their time gazing back at their lost youth with the wistfulness verging upon fantasy. Have they forgotten the choking fug of cigarette smoke everywhere? The insipid gassy beer the brackish wine and the leaden post-war food of the 1970s. What about the difficult pub opening hours, originally devised, so I'm told, to keep munitions workers sober during the Great War? Then there was appalling racism, sexism and the appalling cruelty to unmarried teenage mothers. Does anyone really miss having a stand-up flannel wash in, in a small hand basin because most bedsits back then didn't have a bathroom of any sort. How about the brown linoleum corridors, Eisel fluid and bronco bog rolls? But still, we had Sunday night at the London Palladium, the Dave Clark Five and the black and white minstrels, didn't we? And schoolchildren were routinely caned. And we still had hangings. The swinging sixties. Lol. Nowadays, despite viruses, climate change and nuclear brinkmanship, I'd like to think that things may be improving. I'm only sorry that I probably won't live long enough to see the death of the internal combustion engine, the end of the oil age, and the full flowering of cleaner, greener power. I'll admit it's a pity about the parlous state of modern pop music, 
but no matter how much time I have invested in it, I'd still rather that the scientists and clinicians got first dibs on the bursaries, the budgets and the financial bailouts, because it is they who will save the world, if it can be done, rather than airhead pop stars. An economist once told me that whenever there was a recession, there was often an entertainment boom too. People needed to escape their woes, he said, pointing me at the golden years of Hollywood. By contrast, we also considered the boom years of the 1980s. Sulky, raven-haired goths in pixie boots pretending to be vampires. New romantics wearing tablecloths and singing in silly operatic voices. Nobody ever started a website looking forward to the music of the future. So, instead, we continue to look back in languor. We forget that Elvis, the Beatles and Bowie were all futurists. Never have we needed a future tribute act so badly. In our second opinion piece, Michael Cole asks, Will overseas students be taking our secrets home when they leave? I know Cambridge well. On my last visit, something was different. On every pavement, in every cafe, on bicycles, laughing and chattering, there were Chinese students wherever I looked. Good, I thought. Chinese tuition fees will help maintain Cambridge at equal fifth in the World University rankings while easing the burden on the British taxpayer. But then Ken McCallum, head of MI5, warned us all to look out for Chinese and Russian spies. We see the UK's brilliant universities and researchers having their discoveries stolen or copied. Former Tory party leader Ian Duncan Smith then castigated British universities for becoming far too dependent on Chinese money, with Cambridge one of the worst offenders. Tony Abbott, former Australian Prime Minister and now advising the British government, warned against selling our soul to the Chinese because China viewed ap- academic cooperation as too much of a one-way street. There are 120,000 Chinese students in this country, more than in the entire EU. Their ambassador here, Liu Xiaoming, recently urged them to practice patriotism and serve your motherland. China intends to be the dominant power of the 21st century, as Britain was in the 19th century, and America in the 20th. It's a long game, with science as the key to success. China will expect payback from every student allowed to study abroad, should we worry. After all, overseas students bring in £30 billion annually. But then, there is the case of the Swiss watchmaker of Kirkwall. Albert Ertl was a respected member of the community in the capital of the Orkney Isles. On Sundays, he would stroll beside Scapa Flow, the great anchorage that was home to the Royal Navy's Grand Fleet. Shortly before Britain declared war on September the 3rd, 1939, Ertel left Kirkwall, never to return. On October the 14th, U-boat 47, commanded by Gunther Prien, sneaked into Scapa at night and sank the battleship HMS Royal Oak with the loss of 800 lives, including 134 boys. Ertel was the German spy Alfred Wehring. His intelligence on the steel nets and minefields guarding Scapa Flow 
enabled Preen to deliver this devastating blow. Well reported at the time, the story was later denied to hide official embarrassment at such a catastrophic failure to protect our vital interests. Local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find some of his favourite Barry St Edmunds stories from the past. And in this article, he looks at various places that were demolished in the town in the name of progress. On March the 27th, 1761, Barry St Edmunds Town Corporation passed an official order to make safe the several entrances into the town safer and more convenient for passengers. Thus it was in 1764, the North Gate, where the roundabout is today, one of the town's five gates, was demolished. At each of the town gates there stood a chapel to Our Lady, and these were probably demolished at the time of the dissolution in 1539. Strangely, in medieval times, a bell known as the curfew bell was rung at St Mary's to instruct the gatekeepers to close the gates in the evening. The custom of ringing of this bell only discontinued during the 20th century. Also, to suffer demolition in the name of progress was Pask's shop on the corner of Tafen Road with, North, with Northgate Street swept away with others for the creation of the Northgate Roundabout in preparation for the link to the new Berry Bypass, which officially opened on December the 7th, 1973. Pictures of Florence Pask's newsagents and tobacconist shop shows it with all its advertisements, curiously sold Westwood Home smoking mixture available from 1882 to 1915. Also demolished were Roy's Fish and Chip Shop and Northgate Street Post Office. In their stead, Northgate Lodge sheltered accommodation was built in Long Brackland, around to and including numbers 15 and 16 Tafen Road. Further along Tafen Road, the demise of the Royal Oak Pub preceded the much-vaunted Berry Inner Relief Road, which was to run from Northgate Roundabout to Western Way. Many properties were blighted along the way, including Tafen Terrace. With demolition looming, these Victorian cottages were saved when the road idea was scrapped. Their restoration received an award in 2003. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Ruth, David and Sheila, it's goodbye. Goodbye.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.